0: All right, our reading is Romans 3, 10 to 12, and 23 to 24. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who looks for God. They all turned away. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so pleased to be with you this morning in person. Um, I hear that last week I recorded something in the midst of my delirium from a stomach bug. Please don't hold me to any of those answers that I gave you last week with no stupid questions. But this week, we are um, diving into some of the questions that, that folks have had um, that have come up for years here, uh, veiled questions, sideways questions, often questions about eternity, but coming back to the source of one topic, sin. And I, I've been hesitant to go here because so many of us have a lot of baggage around sin. So many of us have been wounded by sin. Why are we even talking about this? I thought we were the kind of church that didn't beat people over the head with the concept of sin. And it's true that we want nothing to do with the abuse that people have suffered. We want nothing to do with these practices of the church to use the concept of sin to shame and control people. The way that sin and sinner have been hurled against queer and trans people, the way that sin has been used to shame. These things are ungodly. They are anti-gospel. And so it can be tempting to not talk about sin at all, to go completely in the other direction, to avoid it. It's self-protective, I understand. How many of us in this room have been harmed at some level, have been wounded, carry guilt and shame that is not ours because of the way that other people have talked to us about sin. I know I have. But it's not helping us to avoid it. It is not helping us to pretend that sin is something that has nothing to do with our faith. Let's put a pin in the concept of sin for a second. Let's pretend we're not at church. Let's pretend we're in the streets marching. Or perhaps we're at the bar having a conversation. Or maybe we're on Twitter trying to find some justice. And someone, maybe a corporation, maybe an institution like policing, maybe a single figure with power has abused and harmed vulnerable people. We need something to change. We need accountability. We need that person or system or institution to acknowledge that harm. It's about impact, not intent, right? What do we want? And when do we want it? The language of harm, acknowledgement, accountability, repair, healing. These are the concepts of sin, confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We care about these things. When we talk about justice, when we talk about healing our communities, when we talk about liberation, we are talking about the harms that are embedded in our world. Sometimes that we have perpetrated, the systems that we are complicit in. This is sin. We have words for that from the gospel. We have concepts from Jesus about that. And we, if we follow Jesus at all, we believe that God has things to say about what is fundamental to being human. And if harm, accountability, repair, justice, if those things are fundamental to the world we are trying to build, then they are fundamental to our faith as well, and we have to understand how those things come together. And as someone who loves Jesus, I would argue that we can only understand them in their fullness, understand them at a spiritual level, understand them with healthy, healthy, open awareness if we do so by engaging our spirit, engaging our faith, engaging our scriptures, and talking about it in church. And so in structures of power, in our public figures, in our interpersonal relationships, and within ourselves, we need to understand how God interacts with all these things. We need to understand how sin is something that can help us. The concepts, the language of sin can help us heal and grow. Now, a lot of us have something that you can think of as your baseline background operating theology. Theology being the word we have for just the ways we think and talk about God. So there are ideas, some scripts that you have running in your system Maybe they came from your family of origin. Maybe they came from pop culture. Maybe they came from, uh, from a church. But there are some ideas that you have about God, you as in every one of us, that we haven't examined. That's kind of running a background script. And I think that unless we name and claim a new theology around sin... We are not actually avoiding it. We're not actually protecting ourselves from the harmful rhetoric of sin. We're just letting it run quietly in the background, and we try and shut it out. We try and say, that's not me. That's not how I think about this. I don't want to deal with it, but it just runs in the background. And so I want, over the next few weeks, for us to examine that, to break it down, and to have a radical, new, life-giving, healing, liberationist understanding of sin that can be in the forefront of our mind, that we don't feel like we have to avoid, that doesn't feel like it shames us, that doesn't make us feel like we are horrible on the inside. But actually that gives us hope, that helps us know who we are and know what justice and accountability we are demanding in the world and we are capable of providing ourselves. But first got to confront that background theology. So what is sin? And what have we been told sin is? Well, in the country that incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else in the world, we think of sin as crime. We tend to conceptualize sin as a crime against God, God as the punisher, and grace as acquittal. But our understanding of crime in this country is really, really messed up. We know that that is one of the deepest wounds of this country, is our understanding of crime and punishment and incarceration. And so it would stand to reason that if that's really messed up, then our ideas about sin are really messed up. So let's dig deeper into that background theology about what is crime. Well, in this country, we think of crime as a violation of the law against the state. Now, if you're in relationship, if you're in community, if you cause harm, you're concerned with the person that you have harmed, right? But our, our legal system, our, our justice system, theres where my air quotes come in, but our criminal legal system doesn't demand that someone who has caused harm engage with the person that they have harmed, confront the fact that they have harmed someone. No, they say, you violated these rules— We're going to take you completely out of relationship, out of community. We're going to put you in front of uh, an arbiter that has nothing to do with where you came from. That person is going to determine that you have committed a crime against the state and now you owe the state. What do you owe the state? Usually it's money or your own suffering. You owe the state suffering. You're going to pay for your crime and you do that by being locked up. Now, this completely removes the relational aspect of harm. This completely removes the relational aspect of healing, of accountability. It says you have harmed this system. It takes everything into abstraction to the state. And so you do your time. But when you come out, has anything been healed? Has anything been repaired? Has the person who has been harmed been given adequate restitution... Has the person who has caused harm got any deeper understanding of how to do different? Studies say no. (laughs) This logic is really, really fuzzy, and it's not helping us in our carceral state. It's not helping us in our relationship to God either. Now, restorative and transformative justice advocates have a very different logic of crime and a very different way of dealing with harm. They say something has gone terribly wrong in this relationship. Someone has been harmed. There is a rupture here and it needs to be mended. Where did this come from? This didn't come from nowhere. How do we stop this cycle of harm? How do we repair? How do we create accountability? How do we change? That idea, owning up to one's harm, becoming accountable for it, examining it, changing, shifting the way you are in relationship and community. That is confession, that is repentance. And so what about God? If we believe that justice is something more than we have been promised by the American legal code, if we believe that justice can actually be restored in communities and among people and in relationship, but we still think that God as a punishment model, that God wants to lock us up, that God thinks that we need to suffer for our crimes against the state. There's another way we think about sin, and it's about shame and honor. That's where our shame comes in. It's incredibly hard to extract Christianity and the core of, of the gospel from white European culture. And that's something we talked about a few weeks ago, that in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's trying to help folks understand, actually, culture can be compatible with Christianity because there's always going to be a cultural understanding. But we have to understand what's different, what is essential, what is the gospel, and what is cultural What is an interpretation in a moment and a time and a place that might be right and good for those people but not for everyone else? What is culture that is holy and good, that's worthy to come and interact with the gospel and mix and create new understandings? One of the cultural understandings of Christianity that is highly specific to white Europe is honor and shame and the concept of lordship. Lordship. Now it's really it's hard to even think about Christianity without the term lord, right? But think about that. What does lord mean? In the scriptures, we use the term lord for a number of other words, including the Hebrew words Adonai and Yahweh. Yahweh means I am that I am. Adonai means my foundation. So how do we end up translating the same title for God as we, translate, or as we use for Lord Voldemort? <laughs> My foundation, Lord. They're different. And, and Lord comes from European feudalism and the concept of an overlord, which we usually associate with villains. <laughs> or landlord, which we often associate with villains. A lord is someone who lords over you, someone who owns property that you exist on. And and because that was the operating system of so many of the theologians who were trying to unpack what it meant to be in relationship with God, they used that metaphor. That's where we get Anselm. Anselm of Canterbury, who maybe has done so much good for so many people, but those Cultures and concepts didn't translate well over time. And I think it's starting to cause harm. Because Anselm has an idea of sin and of relationship to God called substitutionary atonement. And in substitutionary atonement, in Anselm's time, this comes from feudalism and the idea that if you had a lord and you were living on your lord's property and you did something that dishonored your lord. You needed to fix that balance because everything was about honor. I want to share with you right now a quote. Uh, It's a little academic, but it'll give you a sense from Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. It says, The social history of Anselm was characterized by feudalism with the landowner, or lord, living in peace with his vassals, or serfs, at the intersection of a carefully managed series of reciprocal obligations. The Lord provided capital and protection. The serf provided honor, loyalty, and tribute. The stability of this social world rested on slavish fidelity and allegiance. In this context, Anselm's understanding of the atonement reads as a kind of allegory, with the Lord as the Lord, and the serfs as the human family. Satisfaction for us in our criminal justice system has to do with the apprehension and punishment of the guilty while for Anselm and his contemporaries, satisfaction hinged on the fulfillment of certain obligations related to loyalty and honor. we've taken this concept, which had its own major flaws to begin with, right? That God somehow had this really fragile ego, and if we dishonored God, then we had to pump God's ego up in front of everybody else and be like, no, God is God, and I'm terrible, I'm lowly, it's no big deal, right? Like, that had problems already, and then we took that idea, and we brought it into a context that has a shifted culture, and now we understand it in terms of blood sacrifice, and God wanted to kill me, and instead God killed Jesus. These are all different theories trying to make sense of how we resolve the problem of sin. Is it by punishment because sin is a crime? Is it by debasing ourselves and shaming ourselves because Because sin is about dishonoring God and the way to honor God is to show how much better than us God is? Or is it about something else? There are a lot of theologies of the cross. One that was referenced in the song today is about ransom. Ransom brings in the concept of the devil saying you know what? When we sin we are drawn towards the side of evil and we get get caught up in that. And we get held captive by the devil. And so God pays a ransom to the devil to bring us back from being kidnapped. Christus Victor, one of the earliest theologies of the cross, is kind of a a play on that that says, oh yeah, we were in the hands of the devil. And the devil demanded death. And so Jesus was like, it's cool, I'll die for you. And so then Jesus died and was like, oh, just kidding! Can't be killed, victory over sin and death! my favorite? (laughs) Because it's God as a trickster. God is playing games on the devil. God is saying, I can trick you, death, because you can't actually hold my people captive. All of these different ideas, all of these different theologies, they're just metaphors for trying to understand what in the world is going on with God, with the cross, with sin and salvation. And in the same way that we have lots of different names for God, from Adonai to Yahweh to Lord, we have lots of different theologies of sin and the cross to try and make sense of these things. And we don't actually have to say that there is one right one and all the others are wrong. We can understand context. We can say, hey, maybe crime is an okay way to think about this in another context. But in our culture, our understanding of crime and punishment is so messed up that that's actually not how we want to think about God. Maybe this idea of honor and shame was helpful in that moment, but in my culture, we have been so shamed for being who we are, who God made us to be, that we reject that as a useful understanding of who God is. Theologies are metaphors for understanding God, they are tools. And when they do not work for us, they do not bring us closer to God. They are then no longer functional theologies. That doesn't mean they were always bad and always caused harm, but it can mean they are bad now or bad for us. And so I think it is our obligation to one another, to ourselves, and to God to find new metaphors, new understandings, maybe to reach back into different cultures and and teachers who came before in different contexts to get other ways of understanding. Because if the concept of sin has not been serving you, we cannot lay that down and say, oh, forget it, sin doesn't exist. We know that that's not true. What we need to do is find new tools to understand, to say, the way this has been talked about is not bringing me closer to God. It's not bringing me healing. We need to find a new way. Now, people are really resistant to new ways or even to shifting back to old ways. I think about the way people get all riled up about their kids learning math a different kind of way. You guys seen the internet memes? There are a lot of ways to understand how to add, subtract, and divide numbers. There are tools and techniques. There are different metaphors and theologies for math. The important point is that you end up with a system that works for you, that can be built into your being, that you can draw on readily in order to serve that function and find what you are looking for that is the same purpose of theology and theologies of sin. I want you to be able to draw from something deep in your being that you have confidence on to say, hey, I spent enough time thinking about this that now I know it in my spirit. I know what I mean when I say I'm a sinner. And I know that that's actually okay. And that doesn't mean I'm bad. It doesn't mean I'm going to be punished. But it does mean something. All of these different metaphors are theories of atonement. An atonement is a really cool word in our language because it literally is a smash together of a couple of other words. At one mint. Alright, mint is a suffix, I guess. At one mint. At one mint. All of these theories are about how to become at one with God again, to bring us back together. Because Though there are lots of concepts for what sin is as well, in, in Hebrew and Greek there are different words that we translate as sin or understand as sin. Sometimes it's literally missing the mark, which feels very innocuous. Sometimes it's moral guilt, which feels very convicting. Sometimes it's rebellion, which feels inspiring to me, and that says more about me than the scriptures. <laughs> but fundamentally, sin is actually about Separation separation, which is why the repair there at one mint is about coming back together. Now, I do believe last week in my haze, I talked a little bit about the Trinity, that God is a relational God, that God is connected to God's self, that God isn't one in an uncomplicated way, but one in a complicated, messy, beautiful way, pieces of a whole that are also the whole I believe that's so important. Our understanding of the Trinity, as weird and wild and confusing as it is, is so important because it tells us something fundamental about who God is. God is at one and more than that. God is together with God's own self. God is fundamentally relational and connected. And when we look at Jesus' teachings about what our call is— We know that we are called to love God, that love is part of that connection, that that the, the joining together of God's own self is bound by love and that we are invited into that. We also know from Jesus's teachings that right there with love of God is love of neighbor as self. God, neighbor, self, all three. If sin is separation from God, Jesus is reminding us that because God is in each of us, sin is also separation from one another. And because God is in you, sin is even separation from yourself, alienation of the self. The cosmos, the creation, all that God has made, it is meant to be unified, to be drawn in towards itself, not to be made um, singular, not to be nullified and, and given one identity, but to have unity in difference, have all of this diversity of creation bound together by love in a way that actually feels good and healthy and healing that allows us to each express the beauty of our own corner of creation as a part of one glorious, magnificent whole. The cosmos is a fabric, an interwovenness drawn together by love. The cosmos is living and made up of all of those individual parts who all have agency, all make choices, When I use my choices to cause harm, it creates a little tear in that fabric, a little separation. Maybe it's a separation internal to me. Maybe it's between me and my partner or me and my church community. But the more I cause harm, even these little micro tears, if I do that over and over and over without stopping to repair it, it can really grow. Tears between people, between relationships. And then there are the corporate sins, institutional sins, social sins. Sometimes a lot of us all at once are tearing on one vulnerable thread. Sometimes these micro-tears are all happening in one pattern over and over again, expounding the wound, creating a gash in the universe. And it adds up so much that no one person or even one community can fix it. These are the structures of evil we name in our world. This is sin. This is sin. Tears in the cosmos. Tears in the fabric of relationship between God's people and God's creation. Separation from relationship, community, love, existence. And sometimes when we really pause to look at that, it can feel like the whole world is in tatters, so far beyond our capability of fixing. This is why we need God. This is why we need the cross. And we may not even understand why or how, but the cross is fundamental to healing those tears, those wounds, those gashes that we experience in our being and in our relationships, in our communities, and in our whole world. We've been shredded. And some of that happened long before we got here, and some of that is happening by people who are not us, and some of that is happening because we are complicit in systems, and some of this is happening because we make mistakes. But it's happening. We are called to mend this fabric, to heal ourselves and the world, to be drawn in towards a healthy, holy intimacy with ourselves, with others, and with God. But We can't do that alone. We can't even do it all collectively. We need Jesus' help too. We need to become at one with God and the cosmos again. And this is the promise of liberation, of the kingdom. There is something about that cross, Jesus' willingness to face the worst of those gashes, to go to the heart of that separation for us and draw us back in together, that is fundamentally healing, mending, stitching you, us, the universe, back together. And if we want to be a part of that, we've got to name it. We've got to name where it comes from. And so, I invite you to come on this journey with me and with one another over the next few weeks to have a radical new look at sin, to name and claim what sin actually means in our lives, so that we can say with boldness that we are a part of healing the fabric of the universe. That if sin is a tear, that we are all here to mend it. And that we look first and foremost to the, to the Jesus who comes before us and behind us, the Jesus who teaches us how to mend our own hearts, how to mend our relationships and communities and how to mend the whole of the world. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, give us courage. Give us faith that you are good, and that you have claimed us, that we are who you say we are, that we are your children, and that being sinners is part of being human, but that that shouldn't drive us to shame or rejection. That should be healing, to be able to look at our wounds and say, ow, to be able to look at our wrongs and say, I messed up, to be able to look at our world and demand accountability and to know, God, that you went to the ends of the universe and back to help us. In your name we pray, amen.